The XY Advisor crowdfund is now live. To become an investor, head to virtual.com forward slash company forward slash XY Advisor. Make sure you read the offer documentation. It would be great to have you on as an investor. So feel free to join the cap sheet. Okay, on to the podcast. This podcast is with Chris Bates, who's a former, very recently former financial planner, um, who's focused on how to include property in the advice process for like the last eight years. Uh, He's just handed his license in to focus completely on mortgage broking, but before he sort of sails away into the distance, uh, I've said to him, what you learned in that eight years is so fundamentally important to the positive evolution of financial advice that can you please come and teach as many advisors as possible, uh, which he's agreed to. So he's doing the next 30-day challenge on uh, the XY platform. So if you're not already signed up, xyadvisor.com or just go to your app store and download XY Advisor. Now, when you're on the platform, on the left-hand side menu, click Courses, and it should be right up the top. It says View Course. That's where it's going to be held. So it starts on the 1st of September, goes for 30 days. Totally free. Um, Be great to have you there. Cheers. Welcome to the XY Advisor podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. G'day, how's it going? What do you know? Strike a like, Clayton here from XY, and we've got Chris Bates on the line, mate. What's happening? Good to see you, mate. Yeah, good to see you as well. Um, so, uh, property. Now, I, XY stuck a question up on the platform the other day, and it said, how confident are you with mm-hmm. delivering advice around property? Now, straight, you know, actually, most people were pretty confident, but there was, I guess, the occasional response, which goes back to, I guess, the fear of an advisor being involved in property, and that is somehow getting caught up in the wrong mob, if you want to call it that. There are people that are somewhat concerned that they can end up, uh, you know, somehow involved in this off-the-plan property development. And there's this implicit, I guess, worry that an advisor is going to be looked upon in a negative light when they get involved in property. You know what I'm talking about. What? Can you articulate that fear a bit better? And can we start off with that? It's a genuine fear. And to be honest, because what you're saying is, you know, I've got a a business and I've got a clientele that I care about and I want them to get great outcomes. And my biggest fear is that I can refer someone, other professional, not just property, this is any accounting, tax, legal, whatever it might be, a referral to any passing your value and your business to someone else. And if that doesn't go very well, then what's going to happen to everything, right? And your clients might know other clients. And so you've got to be super careful who you refer to. And I think in property, because it's unregulated and anyone can say anything, unless you know who to refer to, you're basically taking, risking everything and your whole relationship with your client and your client's futures on someone who's got a great pitch. And unfortunately in property, everyone's got a great pitch because it does attract a certain type of uh, property spruker, I call it. And um, the commissions that they can make are massive, right? And so 
Um, you've just got to be super careful who you refer to. And, you know, I've been looking at this area for the last eight years. Um, the vast majority I'd go nowhere near because unfortunately they refer to poor property, you know, and a lot of that's new property where the big commissions are. Yeah. And so I, like, I remember meeting you for the first time about almost probably when you, when, when you mentioned that almost probably about eight years ago and, um, you'd sort of recently had come over from the UK where you'd had some experience there as a financial advisor. And then, um, for the first few years as, and it was the same with me, we're sort of a bit newer to Sydney and we're sort of trying to figure out exactly where we wanted our advice to go. And you pretty early and pretty quickly went down the path to get involved in property. Um, so now when I say get involved in property, I don't mean you've somehow joined, uh, an an investment or, or development, uh, firm, I should say. But, um, but rather you, you got involved in buyer's agents and then mortgage brokering and things like that over the course of the last eight years, what has been your experience in being a financial planner who talks about property to their clients? What has your client's reaction been now that, well, you know, certainly over the last eight years, you got better and better and better at bringing that conversation into the advice process. So I'll go two ways. The first thing is a question you put up on the platform, which is an amazing platform. Hats off to you, mate. Um, The uh, around people being confident. I still feel that I'm learning lots about property now after eight years where I think, wow, I wouldn't have looked at things like this a year ago, et cetera. So it's it's so much there to learn and grow. um, And, you know, we're still learning. And so I feel like a lot of advisors even I've been down this journey for the last eight years. I feel like there's still a, there's lots I don't know about property. So I think um, it's one of those things where you, you keep on, you know, growing your knowledge, I guess. Um, I think it's really difficult. I mean, I was very fortunate when I, you know, 2012, when I came back, to, when I came back from the UK, I was looking for a new job. I was jumping out of a, you know, a dealer group that was, you know, uh, I didn't love. And I was, um, fortunately, I joined a, a financial planning business that incorporated property. But when I went to that interview, I didn't know a single thing about property, how even thought about it in the advice conversation. And I was just very fortunate that they had very good property ethics. They didn't buy anything new. They stayed away from all the developers. They worked with buyers, agents, etc. So it was just lucky that that was my grounding. And then that started the sort of conversation and the learnings, et cetera. Um, I think it's really difficult and hence why I've given up my financial advice license to be a great financial advisor um, and do advice around insurance and super and investment portfolios and cash flow and coaching and accountability, et cetera. And then also be a great mortgage broker and then also be great at property advice, et cetera. So what I think you need to do is actually be skilled in the conversation um, but then have the great broker or have the great buyer's agent to refer your clients to, not try to do it all, um, including brokering, um, which I just think is just too difficult. Hence why I've taken that sidestep. Interesting. And, and from a, a buyer's agent point of view, they very much work on a fee for service, right? So they, yep. they will charge um, a price to source a property, to find properties and to help negotiate the property. Do buyers agents also receive some level of commission on the sale as well? 
So some do. So, you know, and this is one of the things that you've got to be super careful with because I'll get lots of buyers agents that will come to me um, or the property people, let's say. Um, and, you know, within a few questions, I can figure out whether they've made a real big call as a business and say, we just don't agree with this type of product being new property and we're going to avoid it and we're not going to ever have anything to do with it in our business. A lot of buyers agents sit on the fence and they say, well, well, maybe occasionally if the client really wants a new property, then we'll go there and we'll buy that for them. But they know that that's not a great asset. So they're just doing it because that's what their client wants and it's an easy way to facilitate the transaction. So those sort of buyers agents potentially will get a bit of a kickback from a sales organization, whether it's a big developer or something, um, for introducing their customer. So they could be double dipping. Um, they may say that we give that back to the client, but for me, that's a great litmus test on whether they're a great buyer's agent if they've made that call and they say, look, we just don't do that for our clients. We don't agree with it. Interesting. Now, for those of us who aren't as familiar with why new property is not a great investment, is it just as simple as, well, the property you're purchasing has a $40,000 commission on top of it. So from day one, you've lost $40,000 um, simply because you've over-purchased on the yeah. price. Is it as simple as that? Uh, no, there's lots of elements to it. So all property, like any investment, comes down to demand and supply. And so if you think about new property, well, if it's new, then that means it's new supply. And likely that if they've been able to build that building or that house and land package or that townhouse or the duplex, et cetera, they're likely to be able to build more of them. So you think about apartments, you know, you buy a new apartment building in an area, if it's 10, 15 levels high, well, probably next door can build a new apartment building as well. So new generally fails a supply test straight away because it's, there's no limit. There's no cap on supply. Whereas mm -hmm. you think about like a an house in an inner ring on a good street, can they build more of them? No. Um, you know, can they build more art deco apartments in more established areas? Well, no, because, you know, they're 30, 40, 50 years old and they, they, the planning laws in that area don't allow more building. So the first thing is the supply test. The second thing is what you're buying generally is a smaller block of land and that land is very pro highly priced because it's priced at developer prices. And so you usually get a much smaller block of land and a building that depreciates really fast, hence why you get big depreciation deductions. So you're buying a, a and land's what goes up in value. So you're buying thing with lots of supply risk you're getting very little land that goes up in value and it's actually not great quality land and you're buying like a building that's like a car that goes down in value so there's all these sort of things then you've got the demand um, problem is that you know generally the demand that wants them is more the affordability market not the aspirational market and it kind of goes on and on then you've got building issues a lot of these new buildings aren't built like they were 30 40 years ago so go on for days around it, but there's lots of reasons why then you've got the issues with finance if you buy the off the plan contract which a lot of people are struggling with right now is you don't get the finance today you get the finance in two years time when that building's finished now will the bank lend on it will the valuation come in at contract price will you have a job will you have enough deposit all these risks as well around finance that new property encourages as well yeah wow that that's a whole list of things that i'd never considered before is there anything else that you would consider on the flip side that makes good property a great purchase? Like what is it that you're actually looking for compared to what you're not looking for? Yeah. So 
this is where I think um, sometimes people go with buyers agents and they, you know, they starting out the journey and they go, right, I don't need to buy any new property. So I'll just find one buyer's agent and uh, then they will be able to buy everything for my clients. And unfortunately that doesn't work. And what you actually do is you become, you lose your independence and you just start funneling business to this one person. Um, and they're, they're only going to be skilled at one market or a couple of markets. And so they're not going to be able to give you the best service for your clients because to actually be, a great to offer great service to your clients you need to have a variety of people because everyone's got different capacity right and so if someone's got a million dollars to spend you know you might be able to look at say a great apartment in sydney in a more premium suburb or a house in melbourne etc but if you've got five hundred thousand to spend that'll send you to different markets etc um mm. so you've got to have lots of different relationships with lots of different buyers agents because everyone's got different capacity everyone's got different needs they want to buy in different areas, et cetera. Um, so that's a big mistake people make. In terms of what makes a great property, so firstly, the supply test, can they build more of them? And so if that's a no, and if it's shrinking supply, so generally there's less of them every year, you're probably in the right place already. Then you've got to kind of figure out, well, who really wants the property? So what sort of the demand side? And better properties have greater demand. So it might be more buyer pools, it might be couples, it might be young families, older families, you know, downsizers. Um, and the more people that want your property, the better. Um, and then secondly, it's, it's got to be the aspirational side of the market. It can't be the affordability side because you really want people with money to want your property, not now, but in the future. So you've got to buy properties that, you know, ideally people who have got high incomes or are going to have high incomes in the area. Um, or have got lots of cash, so like cashed up downsizers. So generally when you think about that, you think, well, where do people on high incomes want to live? And where are they going to want to live? Well, pre, there's a pre-COVID world and a post-COVID world, which I think shifting things. So pre-COVID, they wanted to live around the inner ring of the capital city. So they would <laughs> reduce their commute time so they could get to work and spend more time with their family. Like that's fundamentally what they're trying to achieve. And they want, and they need a house and they want to have something, a house that's got great lifestyles. So, You've got to think, well, what type of properties will suit them and what, what are they looking for? And then can they build any more of them? No. Hence why prices of those properties kept going up. So yeah, there's a lot to it at a, at a system sort of macro level that you've got to kind of understand. Once you understand that, then you can start to go out and look at property, but it's, you've got to you know, do that groundwork first. Interesting. Now, pretty shortly, you've got a 30-day uh, challenge on XY coming up, which is awesome. Uh, is this the, the place that people are going to learn, you know, who and who not to refer to clients? Because, yeah, like as an advisor, you, you kind of, as you know, you walk into a situation where you've got that very much that protective mentality that you've done, you know, so much hard work to, to I guess, build a reputable business that delivers, you know, a lot of value. And as soon as you walk into property land, it's full of sharks. As someone who's probably spoken to, well, not including your uh, very successful podcast, Elephant in the Room, and so not even including that, but you've probably spoken to so many, uh, say, buyers agents in the past. How do you go about, you know, interviewing? And because from their point of view, um, you know, it, you end up being a referral source for them. So they've got, they, they're obviously very attracted to the conversation and it's your job to come up with, you know, it's your job to protect your clients. So you're not speeding them to the sharks. So how is it that you interview property buyers agents to ensure 
that they end up with a good result? Like, do you demand things like a disclosure of all fees and commissions? And yeah. like, how, how is it? Like, what do you have a checklist? Like, what, what do you do? Yeah. So I will for sure on the course at the final sort of session, I guess I'll kind of explain, look, these are lots of people to follow, to watch, like to, you know, read their content, to refer business to, et cetera. These are the people that I trust. Right. And I think it's important for people to have that. Are they the only buyers agents out there? No, but I have, like you say, met lots. I think a really good basis for buyers agents, for example, is Reba, which is like an association for buyers agent. Um, and that's not saying that every business on there I would refer to because I wouldn't. Um, and, you know, because I, I think that, but they've got a good standard. You I mean, you've got to be a buyer's agent for two years. I think experience is, is a huge thing for buyer's agent. And while I believe that everyone's starting out and everyone deserves a go, if it's my clients that I'm going to refer someone to, and I've got the choice to send it to someone with lots of experience or someone who's just starting out in property, I would definitely go with someone with a lot more experience because there's so many learnings over the years and tracking the market, knowing what buyers need, buyers want, what sellers want. Um, you can't get that knowledge. It takes time to accrue it. And so a buyer's agent that say got five or 10 years experience in that pocket that you want to buy has got so much value that they can add. So you're much better off to use them. Um, and so, and that's the other thing. It needs to be a, a specialist. Like I, you can't just refer to a buyer's agent who's say based in Sydney and then they say, oh yeah, I can buy for you in Brisbane or I can buy for you anywhere in Sydney. For me, that's a big warning sign that you shouldn't work with them because a great buyer's agent will say, look, I know the Northern beaches. I know the Eastern suburbs. I know the inner West and that's my market. And I know how to get a great asset in that market. And so great buyer's agents, they niche and then they own a pocket just like a real estate agent would. Yeah. Um, so I guess one of the major problems from an advisor's point of view, and this was certainly my case when I had my business, I sort of roughly had, um, you know, loosely a, a buyer's agent or a singular buyer's agent that I sort of engaged yep. with and interacted with. And I sort of had a, a mortgage broker, um, you know, that I was loosely aligned with. Um, but because they weren't, I guess you would say solid relationships, like, I couldn't trust that once I'd handed the client into their hands, that it wouldn't somehow backfire. And by that, yeah. I mean, they weren't experienced in financial planning. They didn't understand what it was that I did. And so because of that, there was always the risk that yeah. the client felt like they were just getting churned through the the meat grinder right it's like oh yes you're this person who i see here and just didn't really take into consideration that overall you know position that realistically like if you're a financial planner playing in the property space that means you've made a decision to encompass a greater breadth of what their financial life looks like, feels like, you know, what, what it, you know, you, you're guiding them through decisions that are far in excess of traditional financial planning. And so even to arrive at that mindset for yourself, to be able to manage that mindset in your client, you need to sort of think quite expansively. Yeah. But my experience was when I was sort of handing uh, my client on 
tentatively, it was very much just, oh yeah, this person's in and out of the process. Because financial planning is very hard for even financial planners to fully get their head around, let alone clients, let alone other professions that you work with. How do you, I guess, figure out how to include any mortgage broker or any buyer's agent, but more so the mortgage broker as well? How do you include them in that package deal, like that one experience? Like, how do you do do that? So I think with... um you know, and most people think, oh, okay, so he's left financial advice, he's doing this course, so he can get lots of leads from financial planning for his mortgage broking business. And that is definitely not the case. I mean, our business is doing really well and we're growing and we're already got way too much demand and supply and we can't even grow the team because it's hard to hire, et cetera. So even if every advisor sent me one client, it would crash our business. So that's not the reason why I'm doing the course. Why I'm doing the challenge is to help advisors get better at this property discussion. And so when they're sitting down with their clients, they can go, what's your assets? What's your liabilities? And you know, when you're going through that process and ask them questions around their home, like where are they going to live after this home? Do they need to do a renovation? Um, you know, is it better off for them to restructure their home loan to increase their cash flow? Like just to get good at these conversations, I think where you need to bring in someone like a mortgage broker is actually pre, pre-advice. And I'm going to build the challenge around helping, you know, the Gen X sort of Gen Y customer, not the retiree, the downsizer, um, because the advice strategies there's are limited around property, you know, generally. It's a, it's a really, it's that sort of younger clientele that, you know, that you really need to have great relationships around property because two things, one, it's their biggest challenge and two, um, you can add so much value to solving their biggest challenge. Um, so how I'd work with a broker, which I will cover on the course is, you know, pre-advice, it's, it's your opportunity to kind of look at, you know, their current lending um, and what they can potentially do because younger people are going to do one thing. They're going to want to buy their first home. So how much can they borrow? The, if, you have, if, if they haven't got a property, well, you need a broker to explain that to you and have those numbers. So, you know, pre your sort of strategy, you need that. But if they're a younger couple and they want to upgrade their home or do a renovation, that's where you bring your mortgage broker in and say, I've got this customer, you know, how are they, how are they going to potentially upgrade the home? Can they use a relocation loan? You know, do they need to sell before they buy? Um, and so a broker will run those numbers for you. And if they're, for example, got a house, they're happy there um, and they're thinking about doing other investing. Well, if you don't really understand that the power of leverage and what if they're on very high income and they've only got a small amount of equity, is it potentially better to, instead of using that equity to buy a hundred grand worth of shares, is it potentially better to go and buy a million dollar investment property or et cetera? So that's where you'll get your broker in and say, well, you know, how do we actually figure out how much equity they've got? How much can they borrow? And so you use a broker to do the numbers for you. And then obviously in good faith that when that customer, if that customer decides they want to potentially buy an investment property or upgrade their home or do a renovation, then that's where you work with that broker. So you need a savvy broker because, you know, if the broker's there just focusing on rate, they don't really know how to do sort of structuring and strategy, then you'll really struggle because you'll be asking for all these strategy sort of answers and they'll be saying, oh, you know, Citibank have got a 2.59, you know, that's such a great rate. So the broker and then pre-advice, you know, if, if your advice is considering different scenarios, surely you've got to figure out what those scenarios are 
with the help of a broker before you build the advice. So I think it's pointless to do an SOA before you've actually understand all the strategies around mortgages. When you sort of, as an advisor, when you're putting in um, alternative strategies, introducing property, does that introduce more complexity or does it introduce more hurdles for you to consider when filling out, you know, what we've considered and chosen not to do? Or do you see it as, as a way to, to sort of say to the client, well, we at, it, like, because there are people obviously that don't want to buy property for whatever reason. Um, and for the people that scope out, well, you know, they just decide that they don't want property. When you're sort of talking about alternative strategies, is it good sort of compliance to go in and say, Hey, we considered talking about a property. These are the sort of things that, you know, and at a later stage when you change your mind, because often people do, um, these are the kind of things that we would look at. And how do you uh, approach a conversation about property with people that aren't interested in property? So most younger people, um, you know, and, and talking about younger couples, they want to, they want a house to live in, but if let's say they just want to rent for the rest of their life. A lot of those people change their tune as soon as they have a family because they want to have security and stability and send their kids to a certain school. And, you know, they might need to be in a catchment zone or something like that. So, you know, most young people have some type of interest with it, whether they want to buy it for a house to live in, or they, for example, want to, you know, they've only got limited capital. So you can go and slowly kind of build your portfolio by, you know, investing in index funds. And, you know, even if those funds shoot the light out, unless they're leveraged, you know, it's not going to compete with say the returns on a property, for example. Yeah. I mean, if it's people that as part of good advice, even though I think you probably could do good advice, without considering property as a strategy. But if you're saying, you know, a person with equity um, and you're not considering a home upgrade as a strategy into a better home is, you know, which is their biggest tax-free asset, right? If you think super's got great, you know, tax status, well, your home's tax-free, you know, for the (laughs) next 20, 30 years. I think that's the biggest opportunity from a tax-free status. Um, If you're not considering you know, super putting more money into super versus just paying off the mortgage. Well, that's a simple sort of scenario. But if you're not actually considering that as a negative cash flow on a property, then, you know, if you come back in five years time, you know, what was better advice? Well, mm-hmm. potentially as a, re- on a pure return basis, as long as you, you know, if you bought a good property and this is the big thing about the course is that, you know, I don't believe in every property. In fact, I believe in very few and that's where people go wrong is they go and just buy any property. And so, yeah, it, it's a whole sort of process there, but you're right. It's a big mindset shift. And if you want to work with younger people, then there's so much value you can add and so many strategies that you're probably not even talking to your clients about that they don't really know about. They don't really know how to, how to solve these problems. And so you can become that expert for them. Do you have uh, a, a- a piece of software or maybe even a self-created tool that you use that shows um, different results for, let's say a, um, a deductible, uh, you know, concessional contribution uh, into superannuation compared to purchasing a property. Like, do you have a way to quantitatively show your clients the different types of outcomes that they can experience? So, you know, it's pretty simple to do, um, you know, comparing paying off your mortgage at 3% interest rates versus, you know, salary sacrificing, you know, an extra 10 grand into super, right? Um, 
and, and show why the salary sacrifice in the super is much better off because of the tax savings straight away, right? And especially because interest rates are so low on the home loan. But if you're saying the alternative of putting that 10 grand into super is a negative cash flow of 10 grand a year on an investment property, which will probably be after tax, maybe, maybe a property say 800 grand, right? Especially when rates are low. Well, it doesn't take much for that property to dwarf the potential tax savings on 10 grand into super, right. you know, if a property performs at 3% a year, then you're going to dwarf the tax savings on your super. So the big problem I find with all these sort of spreadsheets, etc., is that you can look at old, you know, past 20 years returns. And this is one of the questions we had on the platform is what returns do you use? Definitely don't use the returns that the markets performed over the last 20, 30 years. Because if you do that, you're going to, you know, think that the returns are going to be much greater than they probably will be. And so you can do these amazing sort of forecasting. I know as an advisor, you know, for 13 years that it was all about sort of scenario analysis and forecasting it out to people of 65, et cetera. But the growth rates that we use, um, you know, even on investment returns, uh, it's hard to say that that's going to be what the growth is going to be over 20, 30 years. And in fact, you actually don't need to use anywhere near that to still make it a great decision. So I do, but you know, that's a really simple one where you go home, pay off the home loan, put money into super versus buy an investment property. Even with a very low return, it's still going to be better to buy an investment property over super. Cool. Um, at what stage would you introduce the fact that if someone's coming to see you, um, see, I guess it's a little bit different with you because, um, because I'm, I'm imagining most people before they came to see you would have been familiar with your, I, I call it micro blogging on uh, your LinkedIn. Um, and so they're probably well, well, well aware that property is a part of the conversation that you would have been having before they walked in. Let, let's assume that we removed uh, your title of the Chris Bates of uh, you know, LinkedIn right? Like let's, let's, let's totally remove the thousands probably at this stage that you've done. Let's say that someone uh, contacted you, you know, however they fell into your, um, your lead yeah. list, if you want to call it that, at what stage should someone be aware that property is a part of the conversation that's going to be had? Because, um, it just never was it, it, like property just did not fall into any single conversation that I had. And it was typically, you know, I would wait for, and I'm sure most advisors are in this position. I would wait for my client to say to me, Hey, um, you know, we're thinking about buying a property. And it's sort of at that stage, I was like, okay, cool. Like, Oh, you know, I know someone here, but not really. And I know someone here, but not really. Um, it was very disjointed. And I never got, I certainly didn't get comfortable with it. Um, it, I, it. It is a mindset shift, but at the same time, like I can absolutely see why it's a valuable mindset shift. So if you, if, you're, if you want to sort of take on this expansive role of what financial planning is and, and like realistically, because property is such a huge asset to most people, um, it, it always does seem weird to me that it's not just an automatic thing that advisors deal with property anyway, but regardless, um, if, it, if, it, if an advisor wants to start introducing these conversations, where do they start? Do they put it on the website? Do they put it 
you know, as a part of the call, the, the initial, like how does someone who has typically not dealt with, you know, uh, property, let's say that someone does your 30 day course on the XY platform coming up yeah. and they figure it, they got a bunch of tools. Um, they know how to have the conversation in the meeting. Let's say that they, you know, go out and do the due diligence on mortgage brokers and on, um, yeah. on uh, uh, buyers agents. But how do you introduce it? Like wh at what stage? Because it, it does sort of feel at the end of the day, like the way that an advisor will, would look at it would be, it almost is, a, is an asset allocation or almost a product recommendation, but not. But like, so let's say I would traditionally say deal with SMSF, not a lot, but I used to do a little bit of that work. Um, I never used to talk about that before the person came that just ended up that the people who wanted an SMSF would end up in an SMSF. Yeah. But, I, but I'm feeling like property is a little bit different, like because it's such a, a regular occurrence that it probably ends up becoming a part of your communication earlier on in the piece. And so how do you do it? How do you introduce property even at that early stage? So it comes down to what you just kind of alluded to there in terms of, you know, if you're, targeting the SMSFs, right? You're building a client base that of wanting that as a product um, and want to give advice on SMSF. Well, you're probably targeting the sort of retiree, pre-retiree market because of the amount of money you need in super, um, et cetera, right? And so, and that people who are probably a bit more interested in that are people who are taking their, serious, their super a bit more serious, um, et cetera. So, you know, and then you want to pivot from that type of clientele into property, you're kind of wasting your time a little bit because, you know, there's probably lots of other things you can get really good at is, is probably the conversations around that transition, et cetera. Yes. You can add a little bit more advice around, yeah, this is what you can do in downsizing and maybe you should use the six year rule, et cetera. Um, and rent your property out and rent something in retirement and keep your house growing tax free. And, you know, there's some strategies there, but you're going to get much better bang for buck if you, and if you're going to take property serious, if your clientele you want to work with is that Gen X, Gen Y, because they've got so many decisions around property ahead. You know, it's whether it's their first home, the upgrade, renovation. Um, and then also, you know, they're still working so they can afford a negative cash flow. They're still generally building wealth. So they're accumulating. So, leverage is going to be much more enticing to them than someone in their fifties and sixties, um, et cetera. So if you really want to be kind of great at this, well, I guess the thing, thing that I did is, well, when I started the business, I was on the fence a little bit. I'd been working with young clients for say two and a half years, pretty much very few older clients, but I was still kind of like, Oh, I still need to grow a business. I still need to get revenue. So I'll still help these, you know, 50, 60 retirees. Cause you know, that's going to help you know, grow the business. Um, and then it's when I said, look, this is just too distracting P doing a sort of transition to retirement sort of strategy and then flipping to a first home buyer is just not great for the brain. It's not great for anyone. So if that, if, it, if your listeners, you know, young advisors are saying, well, I actually want to work with a Gen X Gen Y, I don't want to work on the retiree space, then you definitely got to incorporate property because without doubt, it's their biggest challenge. You know, um, I know you said that clients weren't coming to you and asking for property, but why were they doing the cash flow? Why are you saving? Well, I want a deposit to buy my first family home. So you, you kind of, you're already, that's generally what most people will want, you know, and, or they're, um, you know, cause most people are going down that sort of that route, you know, yes, people can say, I still want to build wealth, but still 
the best way to do that when you're young is probably using your income as leverage to kind of grow your, your wealth that way. So I think it just comes down to your clientele. If you really want to work with younger clients, you've got to get great at the property discussion because it's just one of the biggest, the best tools in your kind of toolkit. And it's one of their biggest challenge, if not the biggest. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So assuming then that you're speaking to that younger client and, and obviously, uh, Chris, we're not as young as we used to be. So what do you currently classify as a young client? So I think most clients won't come to, we get very few clients in their twenties. Like, you know, we do, and I love it. You know, I'll get someone and I'll say the 23 on the, on the phone. I'll just, you know, get excited. Cause I think, you know, good on them. Um, but most people come to advisors around 30 sort of thing. They start taking their life a bit more serious. Um, and if someone comes in their twenties, great, but generally, you know, people are coming in their thirties and some, you know, you, I'm sure every one of your listeners right now have seen clients and they've never got advice and they come into you at 53 or 54. And then they say they want to retire in six years time. And you're like, how am I going to do that? You know? <laughs> and, um, and you've got to kind of be this sort of magic wand over their finances and, um, the reality is it's just impossible to facilitate. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, you know, most clients that we love to see is that the new couples or, you know, they might be singles, but they, you know, want to do something for their future. And they might be like, well, I've, I've saved hard in my twenties. Now I want to buy a little, my first home or, or et cetera. So, um, you know, but then it, it's the people who have got, you know, bought a place, they've lived there for 10 years and they're in their early forties they're great advice clients um, because you know there's a bit more, bit more going on, um, but they've got lots of challenges around property. So, yeah, it's probably anything from the twenties to the mid forties. Yeah, okay, that makes a bit more sense. Um, which was uh, my target demographic when when I was advising, and I guess um, I'll never forget the day that my client um, calls me up and he goes, "Oh, I've just bought a property." And I need to sell down the leveraged, you know, there's a couple of hundred thousand leveraged portfolio yeah. that, that we had um, and, and uh, to use as the deposit, right? Mm. And then there was like, I, I don't, I can't remember the exact time, but there was a certain like time limit that need, you know, the money needs to get in by because if not, there's problems. Yeah. And, uh, and mate, that was, that was uh, pandemonium. Uh, to make sure that this, you know, relatively uh, complicated strategy was un, like unwound immediately. And I remember having to like go to the offices of the particular product providers that were used in this um, strategy because it yeah. was so difficult to get it done in this certain time. And I remember sort of being uh, flummoxed. I, I was sitting there going, I, I can't believe that, I'm this guy's advisor and he was a great client. We got along really well, but I can't believe I got so blindsided by the fact that he had made this huge financial decision mm. and I wasn't a part of that decision. And I, and realistically it wasn't his fault. It was because at no stage had I ever, I guess, um, taken mm. that conversation on to, to say to this client, Hey, actually, um, we should, we should be thinking about this together and you shouldn't be making any sort of rash decisions without me. Like yeah. he would, he would ask me, you know, if he wanted, if, if he should invest in some startup investing, I said, look, this is an advice. It's definitely, you know, but if you want to take a portion of your 
money and sort of play around with it and be a little bit risky and completely outside of what we do, I can understand and we can have a conversation about it, but certainly, um, you know, there's no decision or no personal advice involved in this conversation, but, um, but we wouldn't have that with property as well. And I, and, and it was kind of like the whole thing, just sort of how, how it happened was my real sort of dawning moment on the fact that all this time I should have been speaking to him or at least letting him know that when he was ready to make these decisions that as his advisor, I'm a key part of that decision. Yeah. Um, and so I, it, it just so happened that I was um, already in the process of, of selling the company. And uh, so I never sort of walked down this path, but if I was still an advisor, I would like to think that um, if I wasn't already, you know, fixing that part of my process up that I would be certainly signing up to learn from you because of your, I guess, methodology, your, your revenue model from an advisor who's been working with property isn't that sort of, you know, that let's call it the, um, you know, the, the, the one that advisors don't like, which is those, there's many names for them. And I, I don't want to use anything insulting, but you know, those kind of companies that have SMSFs and they have, property development as a part of that. And yeah. it's just sort of a, a bit of a, a, a one size fits all a bit of a shop that some, that some, uh, uh, you know, companies out there have done. Um, and, and advisors don't want anything to do with that. And you haven't been a part of that, but it's really rare to find advisors specialists that have done it the way that advisors like to approach and should approach advice, which is that sort of arm's length. What's the best interest of the client and how do we take care of you know, all facets of their life? So mate, I am, uh, I'm really excited. Interestingly, the challenge that we had beforehand was run by Adele and it was uh, really about how to get in front of, you know, as many people as possible using LinkedIn Bloody hell, you could have run that challenge as well, mate. Um, so it's definitely the, the, uh, the platform for Chris Bates to, to tell people what to do. Um, so thank you so much for doing that. Um, by the time this podcast gets out, we may already be launched. But if people haven't already joined and want to join, how do they do that? So yeah, I mean, your platform is, uh, you probably know better than me how to do it. But I think you're right. Like, I think, you know, your story there is very relevant. And if you've got sort of that young clientele and you're seeing yourself as that trusted advisor, like whether everyone wants to call themselves that trusted advisor, or you should want to be that advisor in your client's mind. So whenever something they've got to do with their finances, you're the one that pops up. And if you're not there for that property decision and you want to work with young clients, then for me, you're just, you're not really solving their biggest problem. And so I think that's why hopefully through the challenge, you can become better at that and it won't just happen overnight. But I think in 30 days, you'll have a lot of the, you know, the 80-20 the rule, right? The foundations on what you need to know, what paths not to take. And that's probably the key thing. Um, and hopefully then, you know, help your clients make better decisions and ultimately be that trusted advisor for them long-term, which is what we all want to be. Awesome, man. Well, look, thanks for spending a bit of time with us today, um, sharing. I'm pretty pumped that this is coming up. So yeah, man, thank you. Thanks, Clayton. Appreciate it, mate. Cheers. Cheers, mate.